0: Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're back in this incredible book. I'm going to look at God's Word and apply it to our lives. It's a relevant section of Ephesians, especially in this divided world we live in today. And uh, last week we looked at the true bridge The true bridge that reconciles us to God and then reconciles us to each other. And it is the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice he made on the cross. I want you to kind of um, imagine yourself, you know, 2,000 or so years ago, living in this time and walking into the city of Jerusalem. You are a Gentile, but you've come to worship the God of Israel. To worship Yahweh so you come to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem that's where the temple is and so you come to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh but uh, being a Gentile you enter that first gate maybe that inside of that first wall to the temple mount but unfortunately you can't go any further inside There are many divisions in this temple mount or in the temple. There are the outer courts, which is where you could go if you're not uh, of the nation of Israel. You could worship from the outer courts, but you couldn't go further inside. There was the sorek, right? That wall, that division that had signs on it saying, no stranger may enter here. So you would have to perform... Your worship in the outer courts. But if you were to be able to see inside, you'd see a lot of Jews performing rituals and rites to worship Yahweh, their God. But not all Jews were able to go into the inner courts or the holy place. You know, at the center of this Temple Mount is this large structure called the Holy Place. And in there, only the high priests could go in. The priests who would make offerings on behalf of the people. In order for the priests to make offerings on behalf of the people, they had to perform rituals and rites themselves. They themselves could not walk into the Holy Place without cleansing themselves. with All these purification ceremonies and rights of course at the center you have the holy place and that is the place where God dwelled and dividing the holy place the holy of holies from the rest of the people the rest of the Jews was this large curtain called the veil right this curtain that divided people from entering sinfully into the place where God dwells So many walls, so many divisions separating everyone ultimately from the presence of God. Now, imagine yourself in that place. Imagine feeling like a foreigner. You're not a Jew. So already you feel like an outsider, an outcast, and you can't go further into worship Yahweh. You can't come close. You, You can't draw near. You cannot have access to the presence of God. And then, what we see happen in Ephesians chapter 2 is that the Lord Jesus Christ comes in like a wrecking ball of destruction and destroys those divisions. All of them. He blasts through the Sarech. This dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Blasting through all of, abolishing all those laws of ceremonies that divided them. But it goes further. Jesus, when he died on the cross, what happened? The veil was torn, providing every man and woman who would believe in Christ access to draw near to God and to be able to worship him from their hearts. That is what happens in Ephesians chapter 2. That is what's described. I mean, can you imagine seeing that physically happen? That, That spiritually happened, but can you imagine seeing all those walls knocked down? I want you to picture that. Because here you are, a Gentile, and all of a sudden, there's nothing in between you and the Jew. All of a sudden, there is no division, no wall separating you from the Holy of Holies. From the place where you can experience the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. All of a sudden you find yourself on common ground with people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation able to worship God. Who are these people, this new group, who's able to come together and have access to God? We have the summary statement at the end of this chapter. Ephesians 2, verses 19-22. to Ephesians 2 19 to 22 gives us three pictures or three illustrations of this new people this new race that God has created first it's the picture of a city or a a nation second is the picture or the illustration of a family and third is the picture the illustration of a building or a structure And so we're going to see kind of the summary statement from the Apostle Paul to these Gentiles of how he takes Gentiles, us, from foreigner to family to the framework of the church. So you go from foreigner to family to the framework of his church. It's an amazing transition An amazing movement of God in the lives of his people. And so, before we go any further, let's pause and and give this time to the Lord in prayer. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, you made for yourself a people, a beautiful people, a people made up of many different colors. Many different languages, different cultures, backgrounds, experiences. And you've pulled them together in a way that only you can. You've provided peace by the blood of your cross. And Lord, we are amazed by that amazing grace, amazing love, amazing act of reconciliation. God, and help us now act like the church. Help us act like the people you've made us to be, to live in light of these realities, to grow, to mature into the holy temple that you have made us to be. God, I pray that everybody in Summit would participate in this together and live in light of these realities. God, do that work in us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling i pray that you would do that work in us and through us for your glory in jesus name amen all right so first point verse 19 you went from foreigner to family from foreigner to family we have two illustrations just in this verse the city and the family look back down at the text there ephesians two nineteen it says so then in other words In conclusion, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Have you traveled outside the country before? Traveled to a foreign place? You might have a taste, if you have, you might have a taste of what it's like to be a foreigner, to not know the language, to not look like the people there. I've done it several times, and it's strange. It's foreign. It's a little bit awkward and uncomfortable, to say the least. You become a spectacle. You're instantly the person that everybody stares at, or at least it feels that way. And if you don't know the language, well, you can barely use the restroom, and you come into all kinds of obstacles and divisions. you got to understand maybe how the Gentiles feel. They are strangers. They were foreigners. They were treated, mistreated by the Jews. And this may have been how they felt walking into Jerusalem. But Paul reminds them, this is not who you are any longer. You're not a foreigner. Paul starts with the negative negative. You're no longer strangers, which is the Greek word xenos. And you're no longer aliens, paroikos. These words are helpful to understand. So you have xenos, which is strangers, aliens, paroikos. Xenos is a temporary foreigner. Okay, so we're looking at the word uh, stranger here. This is the idea of a temporary foreigner. This is somebody who's just passing through, maybe in our terminology, with a passport. They have the right, via passport, to pass through the country, but they cannot stay. They have no rights as citizens. They're foreigners. Now, the word for alien, paroikos, this is more of a resident foreigner. This is someone who's staying in country with a visa. So they have maybe more rights Uh, in that country, but they still do not have national rights. They still do not have citizenship. So Paul tells the Gentiles, you're not either of these. You're not a foreigner passing through. You're not the foreigner that stays. You're not a foreigner at all. You are fellow citizens. Polites, fellow citizens and members of of the household of God. Oikos, Polites and Oikos. These words are the antithesis of Zenos and Pa Roikas. He says the exact opposite. You're not a temporary foreigner, you're a citizen with rights and privileges. You're not an alien, a resident foreigner, you're family. Your family. You're a new or a citizen of a new nation, a family. In a new home. Excuse the uh, the PowerPoint troubles here. We're working on it. But dial in to what Paul is saying here. He's saying, "Leave your old nationality behind you. Leave your old ethnicity behind. You you are of a new race, a new nation. You have new citizenship." Citizenship. Citizenship in God's country. By the way, he's not talking about the U.S. of A. He's talking about a citizenship in heaven. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in where? Heaven. Primarily, first, above all other citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. Our earthly citizenship is not the priority. Even for the Jews. You remember Father Abraham, the father of the Jews? Even he did not consider himself an earthly citizen. He found no home here on this earth. Hebrews 11 tells us about that. He picked his family up And moved in obedience to God's word, he left a position of comfort, a position or a settlement with other people like him to become a nomad, a wanderer, and a foreigner himself to other lands. Hebrews 11.10 tells us he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This was not an earthly city. Look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Hebrews thirteen fourteen says, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We seek an eternal place, And we are ourselves an eternal people. An eternal nation under God. So citizenship here, your citizenship as an American is secondary to your primary citizenship as a citizen of heaven. That means let's draw out the implications of this. We are fellow citizens with the saints we have a new citizenship that means our ultimate identity our ultimate allegiance our loyalties are not here they're in heaven think about the application of this today I believe that we Americans are in danger of an idolatrous nationalism. We can idolize our American leaders, our American Constitution, even the rights and privileges written in that Constitution. And in this idolatry, when that becomes primary first, we lose sight of a better country. It becomes all about saving America rather than preaching the kingdom of God and hoping in the kingdom of God. We lose sight of this better country. And by the way, this is a new country that won't be lost, a nation that will not fall with a leader that will not fail us. We can become comfortable here settled here and as a result lose our purpose entirely lose our true identity which is that we are citizens of heaven this is not our home we are exiles sojourners here citizens of another place there is only one nation truly under god and it's not america it's God's people from every tribe and tongue who live for his kingdom, his nation, that he built. And that's who you're a part of. That's where your citizenship is, Christian. Primarily, first. He and his kingdom comes first. And then the world and the earthly kingdoms are secondary. And I think even, just more practically, even the silver lining through all of these freedoms that we have you know being threatened or being taken away the silver lining is this I hope that you see that earthly countries earthly kingdoms cannot ultimately be trusted and I hope even the silver lining through all of this is that God's people regain a sight a vision of God's country and that his country becomes the priority in our hearts not ones here This is not our home. Now, I'm not encouraging you to be a total pacifist and not say anything, not vote, not do this, not do that. But I'm just encouraging you to evaluate your priorities. I'm encouraging you to be more committed to your citizenship in heaven than your citizenship on earth. And that should be manifest in your life. But we're not just citizens. We're not just neighbors. Look at the text. We are family. We're family. Members of the household of God. So you go from foreigner to citizen to family. To family. We're family members. I have to be honest with you. Uh, It was strange at first when I came to Summit. And a lot of people here, the majority of people here call each other brother and sister. That's one of the, I would say, one of the tenants identifiers of Summit is all of you guys call each other brother and sister. I just got to confess, I I didn't come from that kind of background. We didn't call each other brother and sister at at my old church. I I barely call my brother my brother. He's Max. Um, it was just strange for me, I, it was a little bit foreign, I, I hadn't been in an environment that, that was like that, I mean, knew, I knew the theology behind being brothers and sisters in Christ, I knew that, but I, we just didn't call each other that, but I, I've grown to appreciate it here, I, I've actually grown fond of it, because I think it's just a constant and continual reminder of who we really are, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, what a great reminder even though we, you know, we slap it on everything, we should be thinking about the realities of that. You are my brother in Christ. You are my sister in Christ. We're family. We're family. Responsible to each other. We love each other, even though sometimes we don't like each other. We endure with one another. We bear one another's burdens. We are family. I think about what Jesus said to his disciples you remember when his biological family was looking for him, his mom and his brothers? They came to Jesus and said, Jesus, your family is looking for you. And what did Jesus tell them? Mark 3. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. They're here. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says, my, my true family is here. There's a shift in thinking. You think Americans struggle with family idolatry. The Jews, the Jews had a hard time with family idolatry. And Jesus says, no, 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 family are those who do the will of God. There's a new family that has been formed, fellow members of the household of God. I believe you've heard the statement, blood is thicker than water. That's, you know, a popular phrase. The idea is that no matter the circumstance, your ultimate loyalty is to your biological family, your blood relatives, which was also always interesting to me because I have a different blood type than my parents and my kids have a different blood type than me. So I didn't really get that phrase, but I'll go along with it, right? Your blood thicker than water. So no matter, you know, if there are waters or seas that separate you, your ultimate loyalty is to your family, your biological family. Can I step on an air hose this afternoon? That is not biblical. That's not biblical. Your ultimate loyalty is not to your biological family, ultimate, your loyalty is to Christ. To his people. Unless you're talking about the blood of Christ, which is thicker than water, that phrase works. The blood of Christ is thicker than water. The blood of Christ is what unites us. But your biological family, I'd encourage you to find a scripture outside of your immediate family unit. I'm talking about mother, father, kids. I encourage you to find me a scripture, find me a scripture that commands or demands loyalty from you to your extended biological family. You're not going to find it because our ultimate loyalty is to God's family, his people. Of course, we have commands in the scripture for our immediate family. Fathers, you have a responsibility to your children. Mothers, you have a responsibility to your children. Children, you have a responsibility to your parents. You can't use this principle and say, "Ha, see, I don't have to listen to you. I'm going to go to my, you know, friends at church. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about that immediate family unit. We have clear commands in scripture from that. But the extended family, the extended family. It's very popular, especially in American Christianity, to prioritize your extended family, even over your church family. There seems to be this unwritten rule that, you know, grandma and grandpa, in laws, aunts and uncles, cousins, nephews, nieces, they're more important. So, you know, family comes first and then the rest of my life, which includes your church, your church family. That's not biblical, that's cultural. That's cultural. And these people, your extended family, should not get the priority in your time and your resources over the church. You have dozens, dozens, hundreds of commands for you to live out the scriptures in the context of a church. Not at family reunions or gatherings. Now, I don't mean to completely squash any commitment or love or loyalty to biological family. There are incredible pictures there of God's grace and God's love, even in family relationships. And they should be enjoyed and, yes, have that family reunion. Yes, keep in touch with loved ones. Yes, love them selflessly. Yes, show them the love of Christ. But ultimately, listen, your allegiance is to a new family. It's the church family. You're members of the household of God. These people deserve and need your time. These people deserve and need your resources. These people deserve and need your love. They need your care. They need your attention. I just want to ask you just some self-evaluative questions. I'm not going to hold the line for you. I'm not going to draw the line for you. Just ask these questions. How have you proven your loyalty to God's household recently? How have you shown your allegiance to the church? Are you actively involved? Do you prioritize church gatherings? Are you personally caring for one another here through hardship? Or are you devoting all those resources elsewhere? Commit yourself to this family because you're a part of it. You're a member of the household of God. You're family here. We're family There are convicting applications that we could all think through individually. Again, I'm not drawing a hard line telling you what you can and can't do, but I'm asking you to evaluate your heart against the Scriptures, to evaluate your commitment to this church family and to the family of God, members of the household of God. So look at that. The Gentile goes from foreigner to family. Wow. I mean, a Gentile who was called An outsider, the uncircumcision, the dog, becomes family with the Jew. That's incredible. Only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Let's move further. From foreigner to family, number two. From family to framework. From family to framework, verses 20 to 22. So the illustration changes from the household to a structure. The temple structure, which I'm, to keep it all F's, you know, alliteration, I'm keeping it framework, okay? Hopefully that's helpful to you. Look at verse 20. This household is built, notice the language change, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Subpoint number 1, the fundamentals. What are the fundamentals of this structure, this framework? You have the foundation, which is made up of whom? Apostles and prophets, and then you have Jesus Christ who is the what? Cornerstone. These are the fundamentals of the structure. Let's look first at apostles. Who are they? I'm going to borrow a definition from Honer. He says this, An apostle was an official delegate of Jesus Christ, commissioned for the specific tasks of, one, proclaiming authoritatively the word of God in oral and written form, and two, establishing and building up churches. Real quick, the history of apostleship starts with one man. Who was it? Peter. What did Jesus tell Peter? He says, Peter, which means rock. Upon this rock, upon this rock, I will build my what? Church. Peter was foundational. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Those, Peter, and along with the rest of the disciples made apostles and they were commissioned by Jesus himself to do what to go and make disciples of all the nations this whole project this mission launches at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 Peter the rock preaches a message the gospel and 3,000 Jews are converted And it launches the church immediately. What did these Jews do? What did these new people do? They were converted. Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They started church. (laughs) They had church services and church gatherings. And they grew exponentially. And so Peter launched that. And then we see the growth throughout the book of Acts. Where what do these apostles do? These apostles appoint elders, pastors. They they pass the baton to elders and pastors to shepherd the churches. And they set up elders in all these different cities, all these churches. Okay, so that's just a brief summary of the ministry of of the apostles. It was a foundational ministry. The Lord used them in a mighty way to launch and grow the church. Now, what about the prophets? Prophets, they're a part of the foundation. 1 Corinthians 12.28 says God appointed in the church first apostles and then prophets. Who were they and what did they do? Well, again, I borrowed a definition from Honer. New Testament prophets were uniquely endowed by the Holy Spirit with the gift of prophecy for the purpose of edification, comfort, and encouragement as well as for the purpose of understanding and communicating the mysteries and revelation of God to the church. 1 Corinthians 14.3 summarizes their ministry perfectly. 1 Corinthians 14.3, it says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. For you can all prophesy one by one. There's an order to it so that all may learn and all be encouraged. These prophets were extemporaneously able to communicate the direct revelation of God. They didn't have a Bible. They, in a sense, were preachers without a Bible, gifted with prophecy, able to speak directly on God's behalf. Think about how helpful this spiritual gift was. Think about how helpful it was when, nope, you all have Bibles on your laps. They didn't have that. They didn't have multiple copies of these letters, these scriptures. They relied on prophets to communicate directly the revelation of God. It was so helpful in the beginning. This was before the printing press. This was before the completion of the canon, the 66 books of the Bible. God provides this orderly way for people to hear from him through Prophets. Now, real briefly, I want to explain what this verse says. These are foundational gifts. Foundational. We at Summit Bible Church believe that both both the office of apostle and the spiritual gift of prophecy has ceased. It has since ceased. For brief reasons and for more of a you know a treatment on this issue, you can talk to me or one of the elders afterwards. But briefly, four reasons for their ceasing. Number one, Scripture said they would. Scripture said they would. In 1 Corinthians 13.8, it says specifically that prophecy will pass away. So we know there was a time for it, and then there's a time when it is no longer. We don't see evidence of this gift being used in the church in the later epistles that were written. Or we don't see evidence of apostles creating and appointing more apostles later in the history early history of the church we see them again handing the baton to pastors so that's reason number one reason number two they served their purpose for a specific time did the apostles and the prophets do their job yeah they did a good job <laughs> by the power of the holy spirit and the gifts that god had given them they did a fantastic job they 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 started and launched the great commission and they they launched and established churches they took the gospel to the gentiles they passed the baton faithfully to the church to continue the work of the great commission so they served their purpose for their time number three the completion of the canon nullifies the need Again, remember, these prophets spoke at a time before the printing press, at a time before multiple copies were made of the Scripture, at a time when people didn't have the complete canon, all 66 books of the Scripture. But we see at the end of Revelation, what does John say? Anyone who adds to this book adds for himself plagues. In other words, don't you dare add to this book? Don't you add further revelation? Don't by any means declare that you have authority to add to the revelation of God given to us in the canon. Joseph Smith. Um, Jude 1-4 tells us that we ought to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Here we have it, God's word. So, there's no longer a need for prophets to provide extra revelation or extemporaneous revelation from God, or for more books to be written under the authority of apostles. There's no longer a need for that, because we have a complete canon. Number four, which is just the most obvious statement in the world, is that in this illustration, they are the foundation, the foundation of the church, not part of the ongoing structure. It's interesting, Paul calls them the foundation upon which the church is built. They're not a part of the ongoing growth of the structure. They're foundational. So again, that was brief. That was cutthroat. If you have questions about it, you can ask me afterwards. But let's go back to the text. That explains kind of who these apostles and prophets were. But let's get to the emphasis. Let's get to the most important piece, shall we? The what? The cornerstone. Jesus Christ is The cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? I don't know if you sing the song here. Cornerstone. It's a popular, you know, word used in Christendom. We read in 1 Peter 2, the cornerstone. We all knew it was Jesus, but what does cornerstone illustrate? You have to understand ancient architecture. The cornerstone was the first stone laid in a structure. It was a stone at the corner of the building by which all the other stones would be aligned. So it was important where this cornerstone was placed because the rest of the structure would be built from it and it depended on the placement of this cornerstone. In other words, the cornerstone was the standard. It was the point of contact. It was the joint most essential to keep the whole building together. Now do you understand why Jesus is called the cornerstone? He is the standard. He is the person that keeps us all together. He's the person from which the whole structure grows. He's the cornerstone. The fundamental, most essential piece of the building. I want to read this quote from Dr. Hughes. He says, what a fabulous image. Picture Jesus Christ. As the massive cornerstone. And see his vitality as causing the stone to glow. Next, the foundational teaching of the apostles and prophets is laid upon and around him. He gives it its shape, the stability. And the whole foundation then assumes his glow. Then one by one, living stones are set upon it. And they, in turn, radiate the symmetry of the chief cornerstone, forming a luminous, ever-growing temple. That's Jesus Christ. That's our Lord. Whenever the church strays from Christ, whenever the church strays from gospel ministry, their priority, they have misaligned themselves with the cornerstone. These are the fundamental pieces of the structure. Let me ask just applicationally is your life aligned with Christ? Are you aligned with the cornerstone right now, or are you aligned with another standard? Number two, subpoint number two, the formation. Let's move quickly here. So in Christ, the whole structure, verse 21, being joined together grows. The structure grows. This is not an inanimate object. This is not an old church on a hill that's been, you know, abandoned and is kind of, you know, breaking apart, deteriorating. No, no, no. This structure grows. It's organic. There's growth. This word grows is a present active indicative. That means that it is continual and ongoing. The people of God will grow and the growth does not stop, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. These stones grow out from the cornerstone. This has individual application and corporate application. First, individually, beware, beware of Christians who don't grow. Beware. Beware of Christians who don't grow or who are comfortable being stagnant or comfortable in sin. That's not a trait of a true follower of Christ. True followers of Christ, those who are aligned with Christ, will grow. And sometimes the growth is uncomfortable. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes God puts you in an uncomfortable situation. He trials you to purify you and to grow you. But Christians will grow. Ask yourself this. I understand there are seasons of drought. There are seasons of lulls. There are seasons of decline. But ultimately, if you look at the pattern of your life, are you growing? Are you growing in your knowledge of God, in your love for God, in your knowledge of the Scriptures, in your love for the Scriptures, in your evangelism, in your prayer life? All of us can grow. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I've stopped growing. I grow. It's a necessary mark of a believer. So that's first the uh, individual application, but let's talk about corporate application here. Healthy churches grow. I'm talking both spiritually and numerically. Let's not be afraid of that word. We're not numbers oriented, right? We're not basing the faithfulness of our ministry on the numbers or how many people gather. But listen, a healthy church will grow numerically. We'll see fruit, evidences, signs that there is health in the body. Now, I understand, again, there are seasons of drought. There are seasons of decline. COVID, this, that, the other thing. People leave, people move on. But what happens? If it's a healthy church, new people come in and you meet more folks, and the church keeps doing what it's supposed to be doing, making disciples, multiplying disciples, and then some are sent out, or some move away, and then others come in. A healthy church is a growing church, a church that moves, a church that grows from Christ. Beware of a dead church. A dead church is a church that's not growing. Maybe you've seen them. A church that's filled with Christians who are in the same place of life in 1960 and they're still around and guess what they're in the same place doing the same thing no growth individually no growth corporately no invitation in that's not a healthy church a healthy church grows a healthy church grows because the growth is independent upon the individual but it is God who is working in us. Philippians 2.12, you know this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. So the formalization of the structure of the church grows. Lastly, lastly, the function. And this is the thought I want to leave you with today. We are this structure, this temple, this temple, For what purpose? What function? Look at verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So let's go back. Think about ancient times. Where did you have to go to experience God and his presence, to worship God? You had to go to a a temple. You had to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Think about what Paul is saying here. You are the temple. God dwells in you. That's an amazing reality. That's an amazing individual reality, and it's an amazing corporate reality. Individually, your body is a temple. A temple that the Holy Spirit dwells in. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you better take care of that temple. You better not let that temple commit adultery, idolatry. Do not allow your temple to be joined with prostitutes, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. No, no, no. That's the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. Keep your body pure. Keep your heart pure, your mind pure, for it is the dwelling place of God. Walk by the Spirit so you don't give in to the desires of the flesh. Now, corporately, here's the reality. God's people in ancient times would go to Jerusalem and to a temple to worship. Where do we go? We come together. We come together. This gathering, this gathering is where God is. God's here. Not just because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. We know that theology. But God is here because God's people are here. And the word of God is being preached. And we're singing his praises together. And we're partaking communion together on the first Sunday of the month. And we experience and we watch and we rejoice in baptisms together. God is here. God is with us. He dwells with us because we are the corporate gathering of his people. That's amazing. So listen, don't discount the church gathering. Don't prioritize a football game. This is more important. This is a more essential place for you, for your growth, for your soul. You want to gather with the people of God where God is, the dwelling place of God. What an incredible reality, one that we should not forget. Look at where God took us. He took us from a foreigner, a stranger, wandering around the world, looking for citizenship, looking for a place to call home, but no city lasts. And then what did he do? He took us from foreigner to family to the formation, the structure of his church. What an incredible reality to the framework of his church. Now we ought to live in light of that reality. We ought to live like we are family. We ought to live like we are Um, a growing formation a structure the dwelling place of god may we do that this week may we live in light of these realities let me pray heavenly father thank you for this time thank you for the look at your word these realities that are true of us one nation under god lord and we know that that's not referring to our earthly citizenship it's referring to our citizenship in heaven. We are your nation, your people, made up of many different kinds of people, different colors, ethnicities, backgrounds. Lord, I pray that we would live out that unity. We'd live in light of the reality that we're family, and we'd honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.